0: Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I'm back. Thank you so much for your understanding for the week off. I receive the sweetest messages and it makes me so happy to know that I have listeners like you. We may be a community of horror fans, but we aren't monsters. For my Patreon patrons, all the letters and stickers just went out and you should be receiving them soon. I had one or two that were international, so I can't speak to when you'll receive those, but everyone else should have received them by the time this podcast comes out. If not, just let me know. I wanted to give my support to those out there who are participating in NaNoWriMo, or National Novel Writing Month. My hat is off to you. I've never been brave enough to take part. Special shout-out to Gabrielle Ah, our friend of the show, author of Pavo from episode 11, and host of the podcast, Stories in the Dark. Good luck, everyone. Speaking of writing, I get a lot of requests to get back to my own original stories. Lately, I have actually broken a very long writer's block streak, and hopefully soon, I'll have a couple of original stories to showcase, just like the good old days of this podcast— Also, remember to send me your stories. I'm actually hoping to keep up with doing some fun seasonal themes like I did for Halloween. So if you've had an idea for anything winter or holiday horror, send them my way. Could be Christmas or Kwanzaa, Hanukkah or Candle Nights. Just make sure they make it to to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I'm still accepting other stories as well. Just wanted to get a head start on the holidays. The wind was howling on the day I was able to record this week, so please excuse my rattling windows and doors in the background. I live in a very old building. In my week off, I managed to find a few hours here and there to play the new Red Dead Redemption 2. I'm obsessed, as many of you probably are, so I wanted to dedicate this week's episode by tipping my hat to the Old West. I'll start with telling you a true ghost story about an infamous cowboy. Hello, central, hello, central. Give me 603. Please don't keep me waiting here. Before I start this story, dear, relayed by mother. Kathy Weiser of LegendsofAmerica.com, I wanted to give a little background on Thomas Edward Ketchum, better known as Blackjack. Blackjack was an outlaw who ran with a gang known for robbing banks and stagecoaches in the late 1800s. By the time Blackjack was caught, he was attempting to rob the baggage car of a train. His gang was all dead or jailed by then, and Blackjack was all alone. On August 16, 1899, Tom Ketchum, supposedly knowing nothing of the July 11th holdup, which ended in the death of his brother Sam single-handedly attempted to rob the same train again at the same place and in the same way that he and Sam and others had robbed it just a few weeks earlier. The train conductor, Frank Harrington, saw Tom approaching the moving train. He recognized him, grabbed a shotgun, and shot Tom in the arm, knocking him off his horse. The train continued, and the next day, a posse came out and found Tom beside the tracks badly wounded. He was transported to medical facilities at Trinidad, Colorado, and his right arm had to be amputated. He was nursed back to health and then sent to Clayton, New Mexico Territory for trial. At the trial, Ketchum was convicted and sentenced to death. He was the only person ever hanged in Union County, New Mexico Territory, now Union County, New Mexico. He was also the only person who suffered capital punishment for the offense of felonious assault upon a railway train in New Mexico Territory. Later, the law was found to be unconstitutional. Ketchum was executed by hanging in Clayton. Nobody in Clayton had any experience in conducting hangings. The rope was too long, and since Ketchum had gained a significant amount of weight during his time in jail. He was decapitated when he dropped through the trapdoor. His last words were reported by the San Francisco Chronicle as Goodbye, please dig my grave very deep. All right, hurry up. A popular postcard was made showing his body. Afterwards his head was sewn back onto the body for viewing. And he was interred at the Clayton Cemetery. Now, on to the ghost part of the story. Remembering his experience long ago, a gentleman tells a story of meeting Black Jack Ketchum while camping at the Philmont Scout Ranch. He and several other scouts were backpacking through the mountains, visiting various historic sites, including an abandoned gold mine, a ghost town and one of Blackjack Ketchum's outlaw hideouts. The hideout was a large rock overhang, and the scouts thought it would be fun to camp there for the night. However, their leader insisted that they stay at a nearby designated site. Disappointed, several of the scouts set up their tents several hundred feet from the leader's tent, hoping they would have a chance to sneak back out to the hideout later that night. About 11 p.m., When the rest of the camp was fast asleep, five of the scouts gathered their sleeping bags and quietly stole back to the hideout. They set up camp under the overhang and built a fire, where they sat around talking about their trip. When the fire burned down to nothing more than red coals, the scouts settled down in their sleeping bags. The storyteller drifted off to sleep thinking about Blackjack. Suddenly... He was awakened by a noise in the bushes. He said that he felt paralyzed, unable to move, and tried to call out to the others, but his throat was all knotted up. Then he said a cowboy, dressed all in black, came running out of the bushes toward the hideout. He said the man was mostly solid, but some parts of him appeared translucent. He described the man as filthy dirty with a tattered hat, clothes from the 1800s, and terribly yellowed teeth. His face was very red, glistening with sweat, with lots of facial hair, and the apparition held a revolver. The cowboy was apparently unaware of the scout, but the boy was very scared, as much by his inability to move than by the man. As he watched... A strange fog emanated from the tree line across from the small stream and he could hear men yelling unintelligently and then muffled gunfire. The cowboy turned and fired his revolver six times into the trees and then ran and stood right over the scout. The cowboy was wounded in the shoulder and discharged six shell casings from his revolver right on top of the boy. As he watched... The casings disappeared as they fell onto his sleeping bag. The cowboy then reloaded his revolver, fired additional shots into the trees, and suddenly the cowboy saw the scout. The expression on the cowboy's face indicated that the scout had just suddenly appeared before his eyes. The cowboy seemed to be confused and confounded, while the scout was terrified. Then, The cowboy uncocked his pistol, looking at the scout very closely, and said, You are not supposed to be here, and then just disappeared into thin air. Eventually, he was able to go back to sleep, but had to be shaken repeatedly by his fellow campers before waking in the morning. As the scouts broke camp, the boys told his fellow campers about the dream, who were amused by the story. But as the scout rolled up his sleeping bag, he found six shell casings in the dust. Later, when they returned to base camp, the scout visited an old saloon, where a photograph of Black Jack Ketchum was displayed. The photograph was the same man the scout had seen at the hideout. When he told his friends, they brushed him off as setting them up for a big hoax and The scout never told anyone about it again, but he kept the shell casings. After the scout returned home, he checked with a gun expert who said the casings were dated from sometime around 1878, but were in almost brand new condition, and the gunpowder could still be smelt in them. In fact, the gunpowder was one that was used in the last century, but not today. The scout kept the casings for years, but unfortunately, after he moved away from home, his mother threw them out, along with several other items the boy had saved, such as comic books and baseball cards. Some hauntings have an eerie resemblance to life, where ghosts are busy with activities that are common to living people, such as walking around or working. Quote-unquote ghost experts describe these hauntings in several ways. The first is that the ghost is simply doing something that he or she did frequently in life. The second assumes that the sci-fi concept of time-space continuum is real, and that sometimes two time frames overlap. The third explanation is referred to as a place memory, which is kind of like a recording of a past event that has imprinted itself on the environment. Images and sounds are impressed upon a place and later replayed in a phenomenon that is similar to watching a loop of a movie film. So, perhaps there is no ghost in these types of hauntings, but rather some kind of psychic record of a person from long ago. All right, I'll take a car. Why, it's not far. And my time is all my own. Hurry up. There's something you see. We'll have lots of kissing, More and more. This next story had me going down a rabbit hole of fascination. The Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine is thought to be located in the Superstition Mountains near Apache Junction, east of Phoenix, Arizona. This is your classic tale of those who search for riches, but find nothing but heartache and brutal tragedy. This one has a lot of backstory, but once I got to the list of deaths associated with the mine, as well as the manner in which these poor souls were found, I was flabbergasted. Coming to us from Troy Taylor and PrairieGhosts.com, here is the sad and ongoing tale of the Lost Dutchman Mine. Well, Buck. Why well, you're right, it's her little sky and all right and let's go in. Hello. Hello. Hello, Bob. Hello, girl. Lean over. See, Bob, I'll come after all. After all, I was hoping you'd only come after me. Still jealous, Bob. <laughs> Located just east of Phoenix, Arizona, is a rough mountainous region where people sometimes go, only to never be seen again. It is a place of mystery, of legend and lore, and it is called Superstition Mountain. According to history, both hidden and recorded, there exists a fantastic gold mine there, like no other that has ever been seen. It's been dubbed the Lost Dutchman Mine, Over the years, and thanks to its mysterious location, it has been the quest of many an adventurer, and a place of doom to luckless others. What strange energy lingers here? What has caused dozens of people who seek the mind to vanish without a trace? Is the answer really as the Apache Indians say? Does the thunder god protect the mine, bring death to those who attempt to pillage it? Or can the deaths be linked to other causes, as they are caused, as some have claimed, by the spirits of those who have died seeking the mine before? Let's explore all of these questions and journey back into the haunted history of the lost Dutchman mine and uncover the numerous deaths and the violence that surrounds it. Superstition Mountain is actually a collection of rough terrain that has gained the name of a single mountain. The contour of the region takes in thousands of cliffs, peaks, plateaus, and mesas, and even today, much of it remains largely unexplored. Despite the tendency by many to call this a range of mountains, it is in reality only one. It is certainly not the highest mountain in the region, but it has the reputation of being the deadliest. Over the course of several centuries, it has taken the lives of many men and women and has perhaps caused a madness in them that has encouraged them to kill each other. The Apache Indians were probably the first to set eyes on the mountain, followed by the Spanish conquistadors, the first of which was Francisco Vazquez de Coronado. He came north from Mexico in 1540 seeking the legendary seven gold cities of Cibola. When he reached the region, the local Native Americans told him that the mountain held much gold although they refused to help the Spaniard explore it. They were in too much fear of the Thunder God, who was said to dwell there, and who would destroy them if they dared to trespass upon his sacred ground. When the Spaniards tried to explore the mountain on their own, they discovered that men began to vanish mysteriously. It was said that if one of them strayed more than a few feet from his companions, he was never seen alive again. The bodies of the men who were found were discovered to be mutilated and with their heads cut off. The terrified survivors refused to return to the mountain, and so Coronado dubbed the collection of peaks Monty Superstition, which explains the origin of the infamous name. The mountain became a legendary spot to the Spanish explorers who followed and was regarded as an evil place. The first man to discover the gold of the Indians on Superstition Mountain was Don Miguel Peralta, a member of a prominent family who owned a ranch near Sonora, Mexico. He discovered a rich vein of gold here in 1845 while searching for the treasure described to Coronado. Before he returned to Mexico for men and supplies with which to excavate the gold, he memorized the surrounding territory. He described the mountain's most outstanding landmark as looking like a sombrero. Thus he named the mine, Sombrero Mine. To others, the peak or spire looking more like a finger pointing upwards, and it has also been referred to as the finger of God, except to early white explorer Pauline Weaver. He used the rock as a place to etch his name with a knife, and subsequent prospectors discovered the etching and dubbed the landmark Weaver's Needle. The name stuck, and nearly every reference to the lost mine uses the needle as a point of origin. Peralta returned to Mexico and gathered men and material to work the mine. Soon, he was shipping millions of pesos in pure gold back to Sonora. It was obvious that this was a gold strike like no other. Meanwhile, the Apache were angry over the Spanish presence on the mountain, and in 1848, raised a large force to drive Peralta and his men from the area. Peralta soon got word of the impending fight and withdrew his men from the mine. They would pack up all of the available burros and wagons with the already mined ore and return home. Because he planned to return some day, Peralta took elaborate precautions to conceal the entrance to the mine and to wipe out any trace that they had ever worked there. Early the next day, he assembled his men and prepared to move out, but they never had a chance. Taken by surprise, the Apache warriors attacked and massacred the entire company of Spaniards. The pack mules were scattered in all directions, spilling gold and taking it with them as they plunged over cliffs and into ravines. For years, prospectors and soldiers discovered the remains of the burros and rotted leather packs. That were still brimming with raw gold. The area, dubbed Gold Field, became a favorite place for outlaws and get-rich-quick schemers who spent days and months searching for the lost gold. The last case of anyone finding the bones of a Peralta mule was in 1914. A man named C.H. Silverlock showed up in Phoenix one day with a few pieces of badly decayed leather some pieces of Spanish saddle silver, and about $18,000 in gold concentrate. The next discoverer of the Peralta mine was a man named Dr. Abraham Thorne. He was born in East St. Louis, Illinois, and all of his life longed to be a doctor to the Indians in the Western States. Early in his life, he was befriended by a frontier legend, Kit Carson. And when Fort McDowell was founded in Arizona in 1865, he arranged for Thorne to become an army doctor with the officers' ranks. At this time, fighting between the whites and the Apache was often fierce. The Native Americans were being besieged by the army, but it would not be long before the cooler heads would prevail and President Abraham Lincoln would create a compromise in the area. He proposed a reservation along the Verde River near Fort McDowell, which could serve as a sanctuary for the Apache. It was here in an area known unofficially as the Strip, where Thorne came to live and work amongst the Native Americans. He soon made many friends and earned respect from the local tribe leaders, caring for the sick and injured, delivering babies and teaching hygiene and waste disposal. In 1870, a strange incident would take place in Dr. Thorne's career. Several of the elders in the tribe came to him with a proposal. Because he was considered a good man and a friend of the Apache, they would take him to a place where he could find gold. The only condition would be that he was to be blindfolded during the journey of roughly 20 miles. Dr. Thorne agreed and the Native Americans placed a cloth around his head and over his eyes. They led him away on horseback, and at the end of the journey, the cloth was removed and he found himself in an unknown canyon. He would later write that he saw a sharp pinnacle of a rock about a mile to the south of him. Treasure hunters believe this was most likely Weaver's needle. There was no sign of a mine but piled near the base of the canyon wall, as if placed there for him, was a stack of almost pure gold nuggets. He picked up as many as he could carry and returned home. He later sold the ore for $6,000 and became another strange link in the mystery of the mine's location. First of all, I guess we should clear up one popular misconception about Jacob Waltz, and it's that he was not a Dutchman. He was actually from Germany, and born there in the early 1800s. He came to America in 1845, and soon heard about the riches and adventure that were waiting in the frontier beyond New York. His first gold-seeking took him to a strike in North Carolina, and from there he traveled to Mississippi... California and Nevada, always looking for his elusive fortune. Waltz worked the gold field of the Sierra Nevada foothills for more than 10 years, never getting rich, but turning up enough gold to get along. By 1868, he was in his 50s and wondering if he was ever going to find his proverbial mother load. The Native Americans had nicknamed him Snowbeard because of his long, white whiskers, and it isn't hard to picture him as one of those grizzled old prospectors who were so common in Western films. That same year, Waltz began homesteading in the Rio Cetillo Valley, which is on the northern side of Superstition Mountain. Soon after he arrived, he began to hear stories from the local Native Americans about supernatural doings around the mountain, about a fierce god, and about vast deposits of gold. Most stories about Jacob Waltz say he spent the next 20 years or so prospecting for gold around the Arizona Territory. He often worked for wages in other men's mines while he searched for his own fortune. It was during one of these jobs that he met Jacob Weiser, most likely while he was working at the Vulture Mine in 1870. One version of the legend claims that Waltz was fired from the mine for stealing gold and soon the two quote-unquote Dutchmen struck out on their own and vanished into the land around Superstition Mountain. Not long after, they were seen in Phoenix, paying for drinks and supplies with gold nuggets. Some claimed this gold was the stolen loot from the vulture mine, while others say that it was of much higher quality and had to have come from somewhere else. Regardless of where it came from, the two men would spend the gold around the town for the next two decades. There have been a number of stories about how the men found the lost mine. According to some, they stumbled upon it by accident. Others say that they killed two Mexican miners who they mistook for Native Americans and then realized the men were mining for gold. But the most accepted version of the story is that they were given a map to the mine by a Mexican Don whose life they saved. The man was said to have been Don Miguel Peralta, the son of a rich landowner in Sonora, Mexico, and a descendant of the original discoverer of the mine. The Dutchman saved Peralta from certain death in a knife fight, and as a reward, he gave them a look at the map to the mine. He was later said to have been bought out of the mine by Waltz and Weiser. At some point in the years that followed, Jacob Weiser disappeared without a trace, Some say that the Apaches killed him, while others maintain that Waltz actually did him in. As you can see, there is a lot of speculation to the legend. But Waltz was always around, at least part of the time. Long periods would go by when no one would see him, and then he would show up in Phoenix again, buying drinks with gold nuggets. It was said that Waltz had the richest gold ore that anyone had ever seen, and for the rest of his life, he vanished back and forth to a secret mine, always bringing back saddlebags filled with gold. Whenever anyone tried to get information out of him, he would always give contradictory directions to where the mine was located. On many occasions, men tried to follow him when he left town but Waltz would always shake his pursuers in the rugged region around the mountains. By the winter of 1891, an old Mexican widow named Julia Elena Thomas, who owned a small bakery in Phoenix, befriended the aged miner. Apparently they became romantically involved, and Waltz promised to take her to a secret mine in the spring, but she never saw it. The Dutchman died on October 25, 1891, with a sack of rich gold ore beneath his deathbed. Immediately after word reached town about Jacob Waltz's death, a number of men who had heard the Dutchman speak of the mine over the years rode out for the mountain in search of the mystery. They never found it. And in fact, two of the prospectors, Sims Eli and Jim Bark, spent the next 25 years searching in vain for what they called the Lost Dutchman Mine. The search has since fueled more than a century of speculation. Theories as to the mine's location have filled dozens of books and pamphlets. Literally hundreds of would-be prospectors have searched the Superstition Mountain region, and most have come home with little more than sunburns. But there are also many who have not come home at all. There's no way to guess just how many people have died in pursuit of the lost Dutchman mine. Some who have disappeared may have just quietly slipped away, unwilling to admit that they failed to find the treasure, while others may have gone in secretly and never came out. Their names recorded as a missing persons case somewhere. The death toll of the legendary Peralta Massacre varies between 100 to 400. Plus, there are the murders attributed to the Dutchman, Jacob Waltz himself. He is alleged to have killed at least two men who found his treasure trove, and is blamed for the death of his partner, Jacob Weiser, and others. There are also a number of people who were slain by the Apaches after they were found searching the mountain for the mine. These deaths, like the victims of the massacre, and those killed by the Dutchmen, are easy to document and understand. But there are others, which are not so easy to explain. In the summer of 1880, two young soldiers appeared in the town of Pinal, They had recently been discharged from Fort McDowell and were looking for work at the Silver King Mine, operated by Aaron Mason. They also asked him to take a look at some gold ore they had found while crossing Superstition Mountain. Mason was stunned to see a bag of extremely rich gold ore. Where had they found it? The soldiers explained that they had been on the mountain and had flushed a deer into one of the canyons on their way out, they found the remains of an old tunnel and a mine. This small bag of gold was only a little of what could be found there. Mason asked them if they could find the place again, and they believed they could, having been scouts for the army and very conscious of the details of the landscape. They remembered the mine being in the northerly direction of a sharp peak, which Mason was sure was Weaver's Needle, and in very rough country. A narrow trail had led them from the peak and into the valley where they found the mine. The soldiers admitted, however, they knew little about mining. Would Mason go into partnership with them? He agreed and purchased the ore they brought with them for $700, then helped them get outfitted for their return to the mine. They left Pinal the next day and never returned. Mason waited two weeks, and then sent out a search party. The nude body of one of the soldiers was found beside a trail leading to the mountain. He had been shot in the head. The other man was found the next day, and had been killed in the same manner. Apaches? No one would ever find out. A year later, a prospector named Joe Deering showed up in Penal and worked as a part-time bartender. After hearing about the death of the two soldiers, he began to make searches of superstition, looking for the mysterious mine. He was more successful in his search than most, although I don't think I would go as far as to say his luck was any better. According to Deering, he had discovered the mine and that it was kind of a pit shaped like a funnel and with a large opening at the top. He said that the pit had been partially filled in by debris and there was a tunnel that had been walled over with rocks. Deering planned to work as a bartender until he could make enough money to excavate his find. He later went to work at the Silver King Mine, still intent on saving his earnings. Until a cave-in killed him a week later another prospector connected to the lost dutchman mine and its mysterious deaths was alicia revis better known as the madman of the superstitions from 1872 until his death in 1896 he resided in a remote area on the mountain and raised vegetables the local apaches never bothered him because they were afraid of him The Native Americans held those who were mad in superstitious awe, and Rivas certainly seemed to fit the bill. It was said that he ran naked through the canyons at night and fired his pistol at the stars. In April of 1896, a friend of Rivas realized that he was overdue for his periodic trip into town and went in search of him. His badly decomposed body was found near his home. Coyotes had eaten him, and his head had been severed from his body, much like the Spanish conquistadors. It was found lying several feet away. The same year that Rivas was found murdered, two Easterners went looking for the mine. They were never seen again. Around 1900, two prospectors remembered only as Silverlock and Mom began an excavation on the northern edge of Superstition. They found some of the gold remaining from the Peralta Massacre, but little else. For some reason, though, they remained working in the area for years after, sinking dozens of shafts and finding nothing. Then, in 1910, Mom appeared at the Mormon Cooperative in Mesa. He was babbling incoherently that Silverlock had tried to kill him. Deputies brought the man in, and he was judged insane and committed to the territorial asylum. Mom was later sent to the county poor farm, none too steady himself, and both men died within two years. What was it about the superstition that unbalanced these men? Also in 1910, the skeleton of a woman was found in a cave, high up on the superstition mountain. Several gold nuggets were found with the remains. The coroner judged the death to be of recent date, although no further information about her was ever found, and the gold nuggets were never explained. In 1927, a New Jersey man and his sons were hiking on the mountain when someone began rolling rocks down at them from the cliffs above. A boulder ended up crushing the legs of one of the boys, the following year, a person rolling huge rocks down on them also drove two deer hunters off the mountain. In June of 1931, a government employee named Adolf Ruth from Washington, D.C., left for the superstition foothills with what he claimed was an old Peralta map to the mine. When a search party went to look for him a few days later, his campsite was found to be intact, but Ruth was missing. That December, his skull was found on Blacktop Mountain, with two holes in it. The rest of his skeleton was found a month later, about three-quarters of a mile away. In his clothing was a cryptic note that read, About 200 feet across from cave, and Veni vidi vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. There was no trace of the treasure map. Law enforcement officials attributed his death to sunstroke or suicide. In December 1936, Roman O'Hall, a broker's clerk from New York City, died from a fall while searching for the mine. It was believed to have been an accident. In 1937, an old prospector named Guy Hematite Frank came down from the mountain with some rich gold samples. That following November, he was found shot in the stomach on the side of a trail. A small sack of gold ore was discovered beside him. His death was also ruled to be an accident. In June 1947, a prospector named James A. Cravey made a much-publicized trip to the Superstition Canyons by helicopter, searching for the lost Dutchman mine. The pilot set him down in La Barge Canyon, close to Weaver's Needle. When Cravey failed to hike out as planned, a search was started, and although his camp was found, Cravey was not. The following February, his headless skeleton was found in the canyon, a good distance from his camp. It was tied in a blanket, and his skull was found about 30 feet away the coroner's jury ruled that there was no evidence of foul play. In February 1951, Dr. John Burns, a physician from Oregon, was found shot to death on superstition. It was said to have been an accidental death. In early 1952, Joseph Kelly of Dayton, Ohio, began his own search for the mine. He was never seen again, until his skeleton was discovered near Weaver's Needle in May of 1954. He had been shot directly from above, and according to the coroner's jury, by accident. Two California boys hiked onto Superstition Mountain the same year as Kelly, Nothing further was ever seen of them. Some have suggested that they met the same fate as the three Texas boys who also disappeared a few years before. In January 1956, a Brooklyn man reported to police that his brother had been missing for several weeks. It was believed that he had gone in search of the mine. His body was found the next month and a bullet hole was discovered above his right temple. In April of 1958, a deserted campsite was found on the northern edge of the mountain. There was a blood-stained blanket, a Geiger counter, cooking utensils, a gun-cleaning kit, but no gun, and some letters from which the names and addresses had been torn. No trace of the camp's occupant was ever found. In October 1960, a group of hikers found a headless skeleton near the foot of a cliff. The skull was found four days later. It was determined that it belonged to an Austrian student named Franz Harrier. Five days later, another skeleton was found, and in November, police identified the body as William Richard Harvey, a painter from San Francisco. His cause of death was unknown. In January 1961, a family picnicking near the edge of the mountain discovered the body of Hilmer Charles Bowen, buried beneath the sand. He was a Utah prospector who had been shot in the back. Two months later, another prospector, Walter J. Maury from Denver, was found shot to death in Needle Canyon. That fall, police began searching for Jay Clapp, a prospector who had been working on the superstition on and off for about 15 years. He had last been seen in July. The search was eventually called off. His headless skeleton was finally discovered three years later. He was identified by two cameras with the initial J.C. scratched on them. And with that, my record of mysterious deaths comes to an end. Although the death of J. Clapp was far from the last one, over the years there have been many who have sought the gold of the Dutchman and who have never returned. If you're thinking of trying it for yourself, make sure you follow the advice of prospector and cowboy Barney Barnard, An expert on the Lost Dutchman mine, if such a person exists. Number one, if you are a citizen of the United States, you have a legal right to search for the mine. Number two, do not buy any maps that claim to show its location. There is no map in existence. Number three, do not go onto the mountain alone. Go in pairs at least and go armed. Shoot only to protect your life. Number four, take plenty of water and carry only light condensed food. And number five, establish a central camp and work in every direction from it. As you can guess from the narrative that preceded this list, Barnard never found the Lost Dutchman mine, and neither has anyone else. It's still out there somewhere in the rugged hills of Arizona, just waiting for someone to return and claim its prize. But is something else waiting out there too? Something that watches over the mine, or even the mountain itself, waiting for the unsuspecting interloper to dare and trespass on what the Apache believed was sacred ground Perhaps the prospector named Joe Deering said it best when he described the mine as the most god-awful rough place you can imagine, a ghostly place. It is certainly a haunted spot, haunted by an unknown energy that claims the lives of men, haunted by the ghost of the Dutchman Jacob Waltz, or haunted by the spirits of the countless men and women whose lives have been taken because of it. The answer is as mysterious as the location of the Lost Dutchman Mine itself. For more about the mine, you can read Troy Taylor's book. It's called Out Past the Campfire Light. I'll put a link in the description. So what do you think, listeners? Do you think you're going to go look for the Lost Dutchman Mine? Let me know. story of the night was submitted by author Catherine Eddowes. She writes in a beautifully poetic style, and I thought this story fit in very well with this week's theme. I hope you will enjoy The Man in the Long Black Coat. fields of Nebraska are plowed from their once green. It's the start of the summer, and the rain, so far, has been kind. Papa has taken the government subsidy. He sits on the tractor like a man possessed. Eleanor's small, tight eyes watch him. The tractor is in every way Papa's hulking and brooding and red like a dragon. The dragon breathes fire and smoke as it crawls mechanically along the brown furrows that cleave the earth like narrow, endless graves. Papa's shape on the tractor is slouched over, denim dungarees as fatigued as the man in them. Large, capable hands moving the gears, But it's Papa's eyes, worry little Eleonora, even though she can't see them from here. She knows that they are too serious, too earnest. The little girl pulls at the newly turned earth in the field nearest to the homestead. Her eyes, tight and distracted, examine the scar on her elbow. Mama made that scar. Mama has scars too, but they're on the inside. Eleonora watches Papa at work. But Eleonora has one eye on Mama. Always one eye on Mama. Mama who might run to the road and flag down passing cars again. She did once before. But right now, Mama takes in washing from the single line, pulls at her only good dress, cornflowers. Mama's eyes, flat and empty, and often crying, scour the horizon, searching for something. For all that scouring, though, Mama's eyes perceive nothing, maybe her own dead future. Mama rolls the dress up in a ball and drifts ghost like back into the house. Eleonora finishes raking, goes to the house, must iron Mama's dress for church. The walk to church is an hour long one. Above the rhythm of their feet, the Nebraska sky is wide, immense the bleached clapboard timbers of the church, visible a good 40 minutes into the walk, an antagonistic little shape for the last 20. It looms, simple and austere, on the blue horizon like a floating finger, spired and sharp. The farmers enter through the narrow door, two gothically creaking, groaning trees Branches, hooked and arching like spiked nails, frame the entrance. Inside, the church is plain and unforgiving, like it's God. The white walls and polished brown pews more hem the congregation in, than welcome them to sit. The young Reverend Graham stands at the pulpit, forehead high and lofty, August. His eyes, slanted, analytical, bore through the farmers entering, sober, serious. Graham's eyes damn and comfort all at the same time. His black suit nebulous, his white pocket handkerchief perfectly colorless. Eleanor sits, watches from the side of her small eyes. Papa takes off his hat. Mama sniffs. Young Graham's voice is soft, but it warns, cautions, and pushes all the same. The devil walks among us every day. He points his beautiful finger at the congregation. Pauses for dramatic effect. Let me tell you a story. A good wife tells her husband to adhere to scripture, but sees his working clothes have been worn on a Sunday afternoon. Husband, why do you put your soul in such danger working on a Sunday? And what answer does the husband have? The temptation to work is great, to make more what the congregation gives him his answer but this isn't a gospel crowd not even trained catholics good protestants can only whisper money it's more like a question they're not familiar with this audience participation They're not familiar with the word they speak. Young Graham continues The enticement to do wrong by the promise of something good. The devil makes you do it. Eleonora speculates on what the devil might look like. Thinks of the great dragon, the ancient serpent. She likes the book of Revelation. So full of fun, of storm and chaos it is to read. We are tempted in all sorts of ways. But worse is to not give to your lord the first fruits of our toil and pleasure. Thoughts of the devil's dragon red face bloom in Eleonora's mind. All gasoline-scented smoke. She sees Papa's tractor as a blood dragon. Mouth opening and snapping shut. It swats at Papa. Twists its neck to eat him whole. Eleonora hears a sniff beside her. Mama quietly cries. Eleonora slides her tiny eyes around the church and reaches into her own sleeve takes out the white handkerchief she herself laundered and ironed and stored there she gives it to Mama Mama stops sniffing continues to weep quiet tears though looks up into Reverend Graham's fresh, fervent face lays the handkerchief on her lap Long ago, Mama sewed an E into that handkerchief for her girl child, the others dead in the womb. Eleonora sees the edge of the letter set against Mama's white and blue cornflower's dress near her slackened stomach, and she feels that pulling, tightening sadness for Mama that she always resists. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They stand. They sing a dull hymn. They drop a penny in the plate. On the walk home, Papa talks of the new crop. Mama is silent, still sniffing the homestead near the wind starts up in the east, and a man is there, a tall man in a long, black coat. Mama again cries suddenly, loudly now, and stares at him. His bleached, bloodless face hangs on his shoulders, featureless, like a hangman's corpse. Even though he has no eyes, he looks right into Eleonora, and his slit, gash mouth is still and is waiting. His long black coat flaps. Eleonora can hear laughter and screams in the sound of the coat in the wind. The man carries trees and tall grass, Colossal with moisture. He walks on deep, soaked earth, Sludgy with cornflowers. The light behind him, Beautifully sapphire, Bleeds bluely around him. A dank mist swirls, Shadows and outlines group and form, things half hanging silently, indistinct. The mist drapes itself over the smallish piece of Nebraska, over the whole country. In his hands, little Eleonora sees a cracked Fractured earth. Bald fields gape in pain. The earth coughs and hacks. A yawning, cavernous wound, tasting bitter and thick like the oil Papa uses on the tractor, opens up on the horizon. The man holds out his hands opens his mouth to show his teeth and his teeth are razor blades but they're so beautiful so beautiful that Eleonora walks to them can suddenly think of no reason not to because his long fingers now haul at her and she likes the way the slashes feel on her soul. But a familiar hand pulls at her elbow. Calloused fingers touch the scar there. It pauses Eleonora, and Eleonora sees Mama's eyes up close and suddenly now. They're clear and uncrying. So it's Mama who walks straight into the bite of the man in the long black coat. The sky darkens with the snap of his teeth in his mouth. The earth breathes a humming sigh. The wind behind the man moves with fierce sureness. Swirling, dancing, rolling across the once-green plains. It scythes the earth with an acrid, choking dust storm that will last a generation. Finally, Papa notices the wind and the dust, rushes about putting the tractor away, tying things down. But it's too late for Papa, too late for us all. Panic is in his eyes, no longer sure and fixed. Eleanor watches the man as he disappears into the dust. Mama disappears with him and so many other things too. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this little trip out west with me. Remember to check out my sponsor, HelloFresh. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can take advantage of my offer code. I have some fun partnerships coming up that will lead to some fun bonus content that I can't wait to share with you guys. I'm still working on something fun I can do with my Patreon patrons. If you guys have any suggestions, feel free to email me. Also, don't forget to send in your stories, winter-themed and otherwise, to to ScareYouToSleep at gmail.com or just send me a hello. I love those too. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at ScareYouToSleep. You You can follow my personal page at Shelby B Scott. Come join us on the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash ScareYouToSleep. I love to interact with you guys and I'm the most active in there I also do random live streams every now and then. Oh, and I have an upcoming spot as a guest host on the podcast, How Are You Holding Up? I'll let you know when that airs, though. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Oh my god, that chainsaw guy is gonna fucking kill us! Yes, young lady, and unfortunately for you, you are a black woman. So, like 67% of black people and Hispanics, your case will probably go unsolved. Also, just because you don't look like John JonBenet Ramsey or Amanda Knox, no one really gives a shit about your death. But do not fret, because we over here at Bruh is a Murder do care about your death. So if you want to hear true crime stories about people of color and queer folk, go over to, again, Bruh is a Murder for some true crime and some sick ass beats.